Hello. I uh, hope you had a good weekend. I had a really uh, exciting weekend in a way. I, I was on stage at the Bushnell in front of 2,800 people with uh, Fred Armisen, who impersonated me. My life has changed forever. It may be ruined forever, actually. It was a pretty devastating impersonation. Uh, and Mark Marin and Tignataro. And we had a tremendous conversation about comedy. Uh, all right. So, and like I'm still sort of, I don't know, I'm still kind of vibrating from that. Uh, however, I've got to vibrate in a different direction here. I'll tell you what's coming up a little bit later on the show. So a year ago tomorrow, I looked it up, a year ago tomorrow when the Trump presidency was not yet inaugurated, but certainly something that there was no turning back from. Um, we had a guy named Alex Wellerstein on because I had some very specific questions about how the nuclear code launch works and to what degree there were any checks and balances uh, in the president's power to launch nuclear-tipped missiles. And the answer that came back, unfortunately, was no, there really aren't any. So, But we're going to kind of update you on that. Fred Kaplan's going to join us to talk about some ideas anyway that seem very tempting right now that might, uh, in fact, give – the president, a little less unilateral power to blow us all to kingdom come. Uh, and then, uh, or at least blow somebody else to kingdom come who would then want to blow us to kingdom come. And then at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about elephants. Elephants are kind of in the news two different ways. One of them probably a little bit more publicized, and that's the one that involves um, <clears throat> the Fish and Wildlife Service being willing to consider uh, or willing to allow um, elephant trophies to come back from Zambia and Zimbabwe. Uh, there's also a little bit of a movement to uh, identify elephants as having standing to to be represented in court uh, cases. So that's all to come. But we, while all this conversation about sexual harassment, much needed conversation about sexual harassment uh, has been going on, the Congress has been busy, busy, busy. Uh, there are two tax reform proposals. Uh, they are complicated. They are not the same the House and Senate ones, which makes it even more complicated. Uh, but here to help us understand it is uh, one of the people who does deep dives into things like that. Joining us from The Washington Post uh, is Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Heather Long, welcome to our show. Hi, it's good to be here. So um, maybe the first thing to say is, I mean, obviously, talking about tax reform always sounds kind of attractive. Is there an identifiable pressing need for tax reform right now? We need we need to enact tax reform because dot, dot, dot. It's a great question, and it's heavily debated right now. On the one hand, we usually do tax cuts when the economy is suffering. But by just about any measure, we're not at a tipping point. We're not in a recession. As a matter of fact, the economy is growing pretty well uh, lately, as the president likes to talk about. Unemployment is near a 17-year low. So you kind of look around and think, um, you know, do we really need this tax cut? But the reason that Republicans are pushing this so hard is because they think growth should be even better than it is now. So for most of the recovery since that crisis, the Great Recession, America has been growing at about 2% a year. It's not a bad number, but uh, it's below the historic average. Typically, the United States have been growing 3 3.5% a year. And so Republicans say we need, to, as a country, to get back to that level, get back to faster growth. They think this is the way to do it. 
The other thing that they're trying to do, the heart of this bill, is to reduce taxes on big businesses. That might not be very politically popular, but even Democrats and President Obama, towards the end of his term, was proposing a lowering of the corporate tax rate because a number of United States corporations were relocating abroad, literally moving, not just moving their headquarters sort of into Ireland as a kind of a joke measure, but literally taking a bunch of their people and research and moving abroad. And so uh, even on the Democratic side, people said, look, this is not right. We need to address the corporate tax code. Right. Now, if you want to move your business to Dublin, you have to fight all the people from London trying to move their visit businesses to, to London because of Brexit. But um, So I, I, one of the questions that I have about that, about lowering the corporate tax rate, is you, you, know, you can't really lower anything without raising something else or without erasing some kind of deduction that other people get. I mean, there's just sort of a, a fixed amount of tinkering that you can do without tinkering on the other end. So one of the ways, one of the things that it looks like uh, coming out of Congress is that states like the one that I'm sitting in, Connecticut and California and New York and New Jersey, states that perhaps not coincidentally have a preponderantly democratic political structure, so-called blue states, might be kind of financing some of those corporate tax breaks by through the elimination of uh, deductions of state and local tax, taxes. Can you talk about that? Definitely. You have to pay for these tax cuts somehow. And you're right that this tax, they call it the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, but it, it can easily be called the Tax Cuts and, and Hit the Blue States Act. Um, so, what I like to remind people from the big, big picture point of view is in 1986, when President Reagan did this, and everybody likes to talk about we're trying to do it again like he did. What they did in 1986 is they lowered individual taxes for you and me and everyone across the country, and they paid for that by raising some of taxes on businesses, by making businesses pay more. We are doing the complete opposite this time around. We are lowering the corporate, trying to lower the corporate tax rate and paying for it by making some American families pay more. And that is not very popular. And, uh, you know, it's going to, it's probably one of the biggest political battles they're going to fight in the midterms and going forward if this bill passes. So as you were saying, who gets hit? Who's paying a lot more? Uh, it does vary Senate versus House bill, but to give kind of the ba most basic explanation, the people who get har hit hardest by these bills, it's funny. It's a, it's basically folks in the 200,000 to 500,000 bracket. So I don't know if you want to call those the upper, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And then it's folks who are kind of in the 30, 20,000 to 50,000 range, so kind of the lower middle class. So it's just really weird where they're going to hit the kind of this top group, but not the millionaires, and then they're going to hit this working poor group. And a lot of people really don't understand why they picked and targeted those um, those modules. And isn't it the case also that sometimes it's, it's a little hard to predict winners and losers, maybe even within some of those categories, because if you're doing stuff like changing the personal exemption uh, rules and, and raising uh, the standard deduction and other kinds of tinkering, you kind of don't know until you looked at, at a specific person how that person is going to come out on the other end of that pipeline. Exactly. We're all kind of waiting for the nice, and we're trying to build one at the Washington Post too, a nice calculator that you can just plug in a few things and tell you if it's if you're going to be better off or worse off. I would say, generally speaking, in this bill, uh, what happens is 
that people who take a lot of itemized deductions, so what you were speaking about in Connecticut, people who live in those blue high-tax states and they like to take a, maybe a property tax deduction and take a deduction for their state and local taxes, income, income or property taxes, those folks get hit hard because in both bills, a number of those deductions are going away or being substantially reduced. Uh, so that's why you're seeing a lot of folks in the 200 to 500,000 category get hit. Uh, and then on the lower end is something kind of funny in the in these bills, and that's I think where a lot of controversy is. Both the House and the Senate, they give a number of tax bre breaks and credits to the middle class, but those breaks go away after a few years. So by 2023 in the House bill, the, one of the key tax credits for the middle class goes away, and it's by 2026 in the Senate bill. So a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, you're giving corporations uh, a permanent tax cut lower taxes forever. So why why doesn't the middle class get the same deal? Right. And I'll tell you that I think that's a really important point that whatever the middle class is getting here, they don't get to keep it past a, per, a certain point. The corporations, as you say, forever and ever, world without end, amen, they get these tax breaks until somebody comes along and finds a way to undo that. But um, I actually, so I was looking at it, particularly this notion of increasing, doubling uh, in one of the bills. I don't know if, if it does it in both of them, the standard deduction. That seems to me to be a disemployment program for tax preparers. I think by one estimate, 84% of people who currently itemize uh, would cease to itemize uh, under a doubling of the standard deduction. Uh, a lot of that itemizing is done by tax preparers. Mine, mine, mine certainly is. Um, and, and I'm sort of amazed that they're not more up in arms. <laughs> well, I guess you could say it's one of those industries that maybe doesn't have a huge base of support. It's not like, I don't know, teachers yeah. rallying or, or any any um, groups supporting kids. I will say they've been upfront about this. Republicans have said they keep holding up postcards saying they want most people to be able to file their taxes on a postcard. I don't think they're going to quite get it to postcard level, but one sheet of paper versus multiple sheets of paper now. Yeah, I think you're right. For a lot of Americans, it is going to get a little uh, substantially simpler. Um, but as you were saying, there's trade-offs. When you get simpler, uh, your people who are have been filing some of these other deductions, another key one we may talk more about later is getting rid of the medical, um, uh, dedu the deduction for people who have a lot of medical expenses. That will hit almost 9 million Americans, particularly a lot of seniors. Yeah, well, let's talk about that right now. There's two things on the medical front that are especially significant. One of them is the the, the medical deductions, the deductions for medical expenses, um, where, I mean, you have to run up quite a few medical expenses to do that. But given the kind of healthcare system we have here, it's not that hard to run up a, a lot of medical expenses. And, and that is conjoined, in my mind anyway, with uh, the move towards uh, eliminating the, in, the individual mandate uh, provision, which uh, on the Affordable Care Act which seems almost like something that wouldn't belong in a tax bill, although we can probably explain why it is in there. But let's, talk, let's start with those medical expense deductions. As you say, they, they would affect a lot of people and significantly affect people who have really, really big medical bills. Yes. So this is only eliminated in the House bill, not in the Senate bill. But I have to imagine this is going to continue to be a key point of contention 
because a lot of those folks, we, one of my colleagues wrote a story. Uh, it's a, a family they have saved. One of the, the mom, the elderly mom now has Alzheimer's, is in one of those care centers that costs almost basically like going to Harvard, you mm-hmm. know, for a year. It costs over 50000 a year. They had tried to save. They had tried to do the right thing. And now they won't be able to make it if that deduction is eliminated because their tax bills would go up by tens of thousands a year. And I, I just can't imagine that anyone's going to want that to fly where grandma or grandpa are not going to be able to live in a nursing home that they've tried to save money for uh, under a plan like this. It seems almost kind of counter to the overall Republican thinking about health care, which is that it should be market-based. They like health savings accounts with really high deductibles and stuff like that, as opposed to, you know, some kind of real honest-to-God safety net from the government. They don't like that. So it's, it seems punitive to sort of insist on the one hand that people go out in the market and that they, they don't have a really good safety net, and on the other to say, but on the other hand, you can't d- deduct these massive amounts of uh, expense that would result from that. I would agree with you. I think, in the, particularly in the case of that medical deduction, it's it's an odd one. Uh, but the same could be said uh, on the Senate side. So the Senate keeps that deduction in for, for seniors and for people across the income spectrum. But as you were saying, the Senate bill isn't just a tax bill. It's At the moment, it's also a health care bill where they're trying to repeal that individual mandate that requires almost all Americans to either buy health insurance or to pay a penalty if they do not buy health insurance uh, every year. And um, so the reason in both cases that the House is doing what they're doing, taking away those medical deductions in the Senate at the moment, has, has basically created an amalgam tax plus health care bill, is because you have to pay for tax cuts somehow. And, and the sad truth is these are some of the hard decisions they're making in order to make those corporate tax cuts permanent. They're taking some, uh, some money away from Americans to use on health care. I mean, I have to say, Heather, that I, I regard most of what's in both of these bills as a collective monstrosity, and I, I hope everybody who votes for it loses their election as a result of voting for it. However, on the individual mandate, I'm a little bit unpersuaded about that. I'll tell you why. Maybe you can uh, tell me why I'm incorrect. That's usually what happens. But um, I look at that as, okay, so that was a tax penalty that was instituted for a very good reason, to get everybody to get coverage, or at least to pay a tax penalty if they don't get coverage. Um, Unfortunately, the way that I understand it, the premiums on the ACA ran a little higher, maybe than the initial calculation might have indicated, so that there were people who looked at that and said, well, if I really don't want to get health insurance... Um, given what the premiums are, I can still pay this tax penalty and come out ahead. I won't come out, ha- out ahead in the sense that I won't have health insurance. <laughs> that might be a problem for some of us. But if it's not a problem for you, you might be willing to eat that penalty. I- I'm wondering if you've heard anything one way or another on that. I think you're right. And you look at public opinion polls, that aspect of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare is the most, one of the most unpopular, if not the most unpopular. I certainly know people, some healthy folks who are in their 30s and 40s who have, have opted to pay the penalty instead, mm. of, uh, instead of buying the insurance, did just what you said. And you can see it in the data. 
I think the question here is, should it also be in the tax bill? If you repeal it, and you're the Senate Republicans, so they're, they're trying to re repeal it, that gives them about $300 billion in savings for the government, because at the moment, a number of people who are buying insurance are getting some pretty hefty subsidies from the government. Well, if those people no longer buy insurance, then the government doesn't have to pay those, those subsidies, so you, quote, save money that can then be used for more corporate tax cuts or whatnot. Um, you know, but the flip side of that is even more people would end up going without assurance. So the estimates from groups like the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, these are the official number crunchers of Congress, nonpartisan folks, kind of about as uh, rigorous and down, down the middle of the line as you get. And they've estimated that 13 million people would end up doing what you're saying. 13 million more would say, you know, these, these prices are, are too high for me. I'm just not going to... I'm not going to buy insurance anymore. So as you say, are those people better off or worse off? Democrats are saying those folks are worse off after this plan. Republicans are saying, hey, if they don't want insurance, they shouldn't have to be forced to buy it. They're not actually worse off. So I want to talk about something that has symbolic significance to me, and maybe it's symbolically more significant than its substance, although I doubt it. Uh, and that's the alternative minimum tax. Now, the way I, as a naive non-policy expert, understand this is, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, a name that pops into my mind is Donald Trump. We don't really know how much he pays in taxes. He won't release his tax returns. But our assumption is that he avoids taxes any way that he possibly can, the way very rich people often do. They look for every possible way to wangle out of it. The way that I understand the AMT is that's the federal government saying, you know what? You can be as smart as you want, but you still have to pay something. You know, you're going to have to pay something uh, no matter how good your accountants are. And that they're getting rid of this, which strikes me as a sop to the people who are very, very good at finding loopholes. I think you've summarized it pretty well. Uh, to add a little bit more, that tax, the alternative minimum, minimum tax, or AMT, has been around since 1969. So uh, it's been around for a long time, and, and it was created just like you said to try to prevent the Donald Trumps of the world and, and other wealthy folks from uh, from paying too little tax. Uh, Warren Buffett often likes to say it's not fair that he pays le less in taxes, despite being a billionaire, than his secretary does. Well, if the AMT weren't there, he would probably pay even less than his secretary, uh, even, you know, even more of a disparity between their tax rates. Um, but the flip side of the AMT is it was originally designed for the Donald Trumps of the world. But over the years, more and more people have had to pay it because it, uh, the threshold to qualify for the AMT has basically come down and down and down. It, it really wasn't in, it was never indexed to inflation. So the amount, you know, whatever it was initially, I forget the exact number, but let's just say half a million, has uh, more and more people are earning over that amount. And so more and more people now have to pay the tax. We're up to five, about five million people paid it last year. So that's where a lot of people on the right and the Republican side say, wait a minute, you know, this was intended to be a tax on millionaires. Now it's a tax on folks in Connecticut earning 200000 a year. Are those people really the super, super wealthy? As you know, it's expensive to live in Connecticut. Those people are pretty well off, but they're not exactly the millionaires and billionaires that this tax was intended. Well, that's rhetorically very effective, although what they could do is either index it or simply raise the minimum on it. Uh, I mean, if they're really worried about that, if they feel like it hasn't kept up with the times, they don't have to eliminate the AMT. They just have to fix it. 
Exactly. So what you're describing is kind of what the centrist compromiser would do, which is just, okay, we got a little, we don't want every all 5 million people paying it or the top 5%. Let's go back to making just the top 1 or 2% or whatever percent pay it, pay the tax. But at the moment, the current bill eliminates it entirely. It is a big windfall to uh, a lot of wealthy people. Donald Trump, we do have that one year of leaked tax returns from 2005. Uh, some of my colleagues at the Post have calculated if the AMT were not in place that year, uh, Donald Trump would have would have paid over 10 million. When he would have saved 10 million dollars on his taxes, so that gives you a sense of what a big deal that repeal is to a number of wealthy people. All right, now so let's look at the other end of the spectrum here. Teachers can currently deduct 250 dollars for unreimbursed classroom expenses. This is you know these teachers who run out and actually buy school supplies for instances in which either the classroom or the student does not come pre-equipped with such supplies. Um, one or both of these bills eliminates that. I mean, that seems like Ebenezer Scrooge or something. Well, this is going to be one of those bones of contention between the House and the Senate bill. Uh, so um, the House bill eliminates that. So it says no, no more of those deductions for teachers who are trying to do the right thing and help their students out, even when the school budgets are tight. But the funny thing is the Senate bill doubles that. So instead of deducting 250 a year, teachers could deduct $500 a year. Or if they're both married and they both work in teachers, they could they could do I think up to $1,000 a year. So it uh, it's funny. That's it sounds like a small difference, but uh, that's something that would have to be ironed out. And it's the reason I keep reminding people. Everyone keeps out emailing me and texting me. Oh, you know, is this tax bill going through? It looks like a done deal. It is not a done deal. There are a lot of lot of differences to be ironed out. Right. Let's just talk one, about one more thing, and then I, I want to just uh, a- end with that whole question of ironing out differences. But as long as we're in the education piece of this, another group that seems targeted by at least one of the bills are graduate students. Graduate students often uh, work for uh, relatively low pay uh, as teaching assistants, graduate assistants, whatever you want to call them, uh, in return for, uh, for free tuition. This One of these bills treats that tuition as income, right? That's correct, Colin. So in, in the in the House bill, again, is really the one that seems to not be so friendly to educators and education. Uh, in, in the House bill, they would remove a number of key uh, educational benefits. For instance, you couldn't deduct your student loan interest anymore, which millions of people do at right now. You, and for those grad students, uh, any sort of tuition waiver, it's called in, in graduate parlance. So if, uh, you know, if I'm a graduate student, a PhD, doing, I don't know, computer science or biology, usually what happens is they reduce your tuition from, you know, 30000 a year to 15000 or from 30000 you know, to even lower. That $15,000 reduction would suddenly be counted as income. You know, even though it's not actually going into my bank account, and the, uh, the tax change would count that as income. And that means a number of grad students would end up going from paying almost nothing in taxes a year like they do now because they're only earning you know, a couple thousand dollars a year, if that, to suddenly look like they're a you know, $20,000 earner a year. And so they would suddenly end up paying several thousand dollars more in taxes. And a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, is that really what we want? Do we really want to discourage people from, you know, I thought we're supposed to be encouraging people to go study STEM and create the next uh, great whatever Facebook or the next great uh, engineering 
product uh, for our generation. On the upside, the Senate bill does not include any of those, does not scrap any of those higher education benefits. So again, a lot of people are hoping the Senate bill wins on that one. So uh, uh, one bill can't win uh, over the other. I mean, it can win on these particulars, as you're saying, but but not overall. These bills have to be conferenced out, uh, reconciled. There are substantial difference points that add up to uh, real dollars. Uh, On top of that, you've got a lot of deficit hawks in both chambers who are going to look at all these things pretty carefully and say, we're not passing something that we really can't pay for. Um, uh, To make matters even more complicated, these bills are essentially dependent on a vision of economic growth, like a 3% economic growth rate that would help create the tax revenue that pays for these bills. So it does seem, I said it before the show started, that they used to say that a, a camel was a horse created by committee. So you've got a camel here, uh, and you've got to find some way to make this camel run across the desert. And I'm wondering whether that's uh, how possible you think that is, given all those variables. Yeah, that's that's the question of the day in Washington, D.C., and in many, many corporate boardrooms across the country. So um, I've been asking this for a number of insiders the last few days, and I've heard everything from these people who are very negative, think it's only a 15 percent chance that this tax bill gets to the president's desk, all the way up to Goldman Sachs, the Wall Street Investment Bank, with a lot of their alums in the White House. And they are very bullish and optimistic, and they're saying 80 percent chance that all these differences get ironed out and a bill lands on the president's desk likely in January. So that gives you the range. That's a wide range of views about whether this is going to work out or not. I would say the key thing to watch for is the easiest way to make the math work and to sort of satisfy the most people is to not give so much to big corporations. At the moment, the heart of both of these bills is to take the top rate that's paid by America's biggest companies to take it from 35% all the way down to 25, excuse me, 35 to 20%. That is a massive drop. As the president likes to say, it would be the biggest tax cut for corporations in US history. But the average tax rate paid by corporations right now, by S&P 500 companies, for instance, is, tw- is just over 25%. So you could lower from 35 to 22 or from 35 to 23% and still give many American corporations a nice tax break, a nice tax cut, but that would give you a little bit more money to help small businesses, to help more middle-class individuals, to help those starving graduate students or that Alzheimer's family who's trying to pay for that health care. And I think if you start to the compromise come together like that, you know it's coming down a path that's probably going to get a lot more public support and a lot more votes. If you don't see that corporate rate rising in the final bill or as we get closer to a compromise, I think you're going to have a lot of problems. Well, for those of you who just listened to that and would like Heather Long to become Secretary of the Treasury and Steve Mnuchin can take over as economics correspondent for the Washington Post, although I don't think he would really be any good at that. Um, I don't know. You can write a letter to somebody. But Heather Long, we are lucky to have you explain things so clearly and forthright to us, economics correspondent for the Washington Post. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about the nuclear launch codes. Ah, last time we talked about this didn't go so well. <laughs> Maybe there's better news. Who knows? Who can say? His condition is a sin Because the taxes on the farmer feeds us all
All right. So um, a year ago tomorrow, so 11 21 um, we did a show. Well, so basically the election was about two weeks in the rearview mirror at that point, And people were, I don't know what version of the Kubler-Ross stages of grief this is, but in this stage of electoral grief, people were walking around kind of going, well, maybe it won't be as bad as I thought. You know, like how bad could it really be? Um, and like, for example, he couldn't just launch nuclear missiles just because he wanted to, right? So we decided to investigate that question. We had a guest on, uh, Alex Wellerstein, who writes a lot about these kinds of issues. Uh, I asked him that question. Here's what he said. The entire point of the U.S. nuclear command and control system is to make sure that the president and only the president has that power. When you start asking, are there controls against the president doing this, uh, it gets it exactly backwards. It, it, the, the whole fear that was used in setting this system up was that someone other than the president might have that power and that the president would not be able to do this very easily or quickly. So the system is streamlined so that it is the president primarily who is in charge of the whole thing and that it can happen extremely rapidly, extremely quickly without any second guessing. So that wasn't really quite the answer we were looking for. And in fact, people, the people like in the control room during that show started to have this kind of ashen, ashen pallor on their faces. Uh, and it was uh, true everywhere else I went after that. Uh, so joining us now, because there's been some movement on this front, not any real changes, but some movement. Joining us now is Fred Kaplan, uh, writes the War Stories column for Slate Magazine, is the author of several books, including The Wizards of Armageddon and most recently Dark Territory, The Secret History of the cyber war. Um, so, Fred Kaplan, um, last week for the first time in, I think, uh, 41 uh, years, uh, members of Congress actually sat down and had a visible, audible conversation about whether things should continue to be as they are. What were they talking about? What were they proposing to do? Well, this was a hearing by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you're right, it was the first time since some House hearings back in 1976 on this topic about launch authority, who has the authority. The ones in 1976 went on for four days and uh, involved a lot of people who had been involved in the chain of command over the previous decade or so. This one went on for two hours, uh, at the end of which the chairman said, well, is there any legislation that we could propose? And nobody had any, except for one person uh, and he was sort of waved away. And that is um, uh, Ed Markey, Democratic senator from Massachusetts, who has a piece of legislation, a proposed bill that if a president wants to launch a preventive first strike, then he has to get authorization from Congress. But <clears throat> this almost certainly isn't going to pass. He has 13 co-sponsors in the Senate, none of them Republicans. So uh, nobody wants to fiddle with this. Nobody wants to fiddle with it. But but your your previous guest of a year ago uh, is absolutely right. Now there is a logic to this. If you think about it, if if what you're expecting is a surprise first strike, you know, say from the Soviet Union in Cold War times, and the missiles will get here in 30 minutes and maybe 20 minutes after the warning radars have spotted them, then, yeah, there's no time to, to have a cabinet meeting, much less a congressional debate. The president is the commander-in-chief. The whole system is set up 
for him to make a rapid decision. Now, I think Markey has a point, though. Let's say that the president is just worried about North Korea maybe getting a nuclear weapon. Not, not that they've attacked us, but that they might soon have the ability to attack us. Uh, and he wants to knock out a lot of their stuff because of that. Well, you know, that's something that could be deliberated for a while. But And there are protocols for there to be deliberation. But, yeah, the actual launch authority, it, it, it goes, here's how it goes. It goes from the president. You know, his military assistant comes in with that thing that people call the briefcase or the football. He punches in the codes. It goes to something called the, the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, which is controlled by a one-star general. It's pretty much an administrative body. They call him up to authenticate that it really was him who sent the order, and then they send the order to the missile silos and the submarines and the bomber bases, and off they go. Uh, it is interesting that the current commander of U.S. Strategic Command, which is who operates the nuclear weapons, it used to be called Strategic Air Command, or SAC, uh, said in a speech that was highly publicized that uh, <clears throat> he wouldn't carry out an illegal nuclear order. Well, th th there's two things interesting about that statement, or three things. The first interesting thing is that he's not in the chain of command. No order goes through the commander of U.S. STRATCOM, so it's not even up to him. Uh, second, th this was also said by a former STRATCOM commander at these, at these hearings the other day, and uh, <clears throat> he said, for example, that, uh, that, that in, to, in his mind, uh, a preventive nuclear war strike by the president that didn't go through the Congress would be an illegal order. Well, that's in his mind, but it's not in anybody else's mind. Uh, he also said that if the president executed a nuclear option that was already in the planning books, then it had ipso facto already been cleared by lawyers. So it was a legal attack. So in other words, if the president, you know, there, there are lots of options uh, in the books, you know, under these circumstances, we might want to hit these targets. Under these circumstances, we might want to hit those targets. If there is a preset option that the president is deliberating, the legal decision has already been made that this is okay. So uh, that's that's the situation where we're at. It really, your, your previous guest is right. This system was set up for the president to make a rapid decision. And there was at the time and has not been ever since any distinction made between, uh, you know, retaliating to an attack that's on its way or preempting an attack that seems to be in the preparations or a preventive attack just to prevent some country, say North Korea, from having the ability to attack under any circumstances. It's, it's done through the, by the President of the United States and not through any of these people who are talking uh, very fine uh, legalisms at congressional hearings. Right. And we should be noted also that the current STRATCOM general, uh, in his full remarks, said, 
I would just talk to him about this until we figured out how we could do it legally. Well, uh, that, well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, if, there, if there's time, there there are protocols for advising and deliberation, and the Secretary of Defense is part of this, and the STRATCOM commander is part of this, uh, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is part of this. But on the actual decision to, you know, push the button, so to speak, it doesn't have to go through any of those guys. Um, I want to go back to the Markey bill for a second, because mm-hmm. although a consultative process of some kind in the case of a so-called preventive uh, action sounds appealing. On the other hand, Fred, I don't know m- the history of this, whether we start with the Gulf of Tonkin revolution or resolution or uh, the decision to go into Iraq most recently. Mm-hmm. You know, the arguments in, in the, Iraq's a probably better, a better example. Weapons of mass destruction. We've got a real problem here. Saddam could hit us at any second. I mean, that didn't prevent the United States from taking what was essentially unilateral and unprovoked action, not with nukes, but with American bodies. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, during the Nixon administration, Congress passed the War Powers Act, which, if you go back and read it, is is quite a dramatic uh, piece of legislation. And it passed just barely, even under Nixon. But the Congress, in the decades since has never enforced it. In other words, they've never insisted that, oh, hey, no, no, you can't go to war there because, um, you know, we have to to authorize it first. It's never happened. And in fact, the irony is when President Obama wanted authorization to, for example, uh, bomb bomb, uh, Assad when he, uh, after he... um, used chemical weapons in Syria, uh, Congress refused even to consider whether to authorize it. They didn't want the responsibility. So you're right. One point that was made in this hearing, which was kind of interesting, which was uh, somebody said, well, you know, I think War Powers Act should enter here first. Uh, For example, if the president wants to launch a nuclear, a preventive nuclear strike on North Korea, uh, we, we should at least first have a declaration of war against North Korea. And one of the, one of the witnesses noted aptly that, hey, you know, uh, we, 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 uh, we are still technically at war That's with right. North this is, Korea. We, we have a so, ceasefire right now, basically. Yeah, the war ended in 1953, but it was an, it was a, uh, it was an armistice. So we are still in a state of active hostilities against uh, North Korea. So that, that's, that's our, that part's already been done. So, Fred, one last quick question before we run out of time here. So anecdotally, informally, back-channelly, we've heard this notion that maybe there's been conversations among Kelly, McMaster, Mattis, Tillerson, Tillerson some combination maybe of that group that maybe, maybe they just tackle him, you know, <laughs> and knock him to the floor. You know, all of those guys, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an attractive notion, or an intriguing notion, and, and there's a, a very interesting paperback uh, novel published in England now called To Kill a President, which, which outlines a, a scenario involving, you know, a plot to kill the president by his senior advisors because he's pulling all these nuclear stunts. But it's really not likely to happen. These guys have come up uh, through heavy training in... Uh, you know, civilian control of the military, uh, it would be sort of a coup 
for the military to prevent him from carrying out such an attack. Now, two things that I should say, um, you know, to, to kind of not make this a complete uh, funk land. Uh, first, they're, they're almost certainly, it's very unlikely that a president, even this president, would just do this off, you know, wake up one day and say, I'm going to push the button. Uh, he would, you would think, I would hope, uh, consult. And then, for example, in fact, I, I think, in fact, uh, some military briefers have already told him that unless the North Koreans start bringing their nuclear stuff out, they have this, it's all buried deep underground. And our nuclear weapons are actually not so suitable to destroying things that are buried deep, deep, deep underground. Uh, so the, the idea would say, well, let's wait until they, they come out of their hole. You know, then it would be a, a prevent, a pre preemptive instead of a preventive attack. They would also go into, I'm sure, I know for a fact that briefings also go into, uh, well, the North Koreans were not going to be able to get all their stuff. Uh, if they retaliated, you know, not even just with nuclear, but even with, with their artillery rockets on the North-South Korean border, where Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is only 35 miles south of there. Uh, millions, possibly, of South Koreans, Japanese, thousands or tens of thousands of American troops in the area would die. Uh, and actually, we, even though that takes us a little into Funkland, Fred Kaplan, I'm getting the signal. We, we've got to stop right here. Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate Magazine, is the author of several books, including The Wizards of Armageddon and most recently Dark Territory, The Secret History of, the, of Cyber War. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk. Well, it'll be a little bit of Funkland still, but it'll be about elephants when we come back. Because a real clown's got the nuclear I used to be worried about a major nuclear exchange. Now I just want to know when it's going to happen so I can decide whether to get my car emissions inspected. Today's show was produced by Dr. Jonathan Strangepants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is hiding in your fallout shelter, and our intern is Ashley Taylor. The part of Bill Curry was played by Slim Pickens. On tomorrow's show, the deep roots of our not-always-rational fear of radiation. And now... Back to Colin. Actually, and this one was my fault. I had a brain slip. Obviously, this show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, who always produces the Monday Scramble. All right. So um, now we're going to talk about elephants with Virginia Morell, contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, regular contributor to National Geographic, and the author of four books, most recently, Animal Wise, The Thoughts and Feelings of Our Fellow Creatures. This weekend, she wrote What Elephant Hunting Does to the Elephants Left Behind for the Atlantic. Uh, Virginia Morell, welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we've been kind of whipsawed on this question, right? Uh, at one yes. point we had uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, recommending the uh, admission to the United States uh, of uh, elephant remains, elephant trophies, so to speak, from Zimbabwe and Zambia. The president put it on hold uh, this Sunday for whatever it's worth. He tweeted, big game trophy decision will be announced next week, but it will, I will be hard-pressed to change my mind that this horror show in any way helps conservation of elephants or any other animal. Sometimes he's a little hard to parse there, but it sounds like he's not in favor of uh, allowing importation. It, it does sound that way, and, and I certainly hope that that's his decision. I know that many people who study elephants feel the same way. 
When he when he talks about the conservation argument, I assume what he refers to is, and this has come up with other kinds of animals uh, in Africa too. That you know, if you create a situation where they can be legally hunted and people can get money and resources and tourism dollars and stuff out of that process, you can create a situation where poaching goes down. You don't really buy that argument. No, that doesn't seem to actually be the case. And in fact, anything that allows the trade in elephant ivory increases. Uh, elephant deaths. And there have been numerous studies that have shown that. And also there's often an argument that somehow by hunting elephants or hunting lions, whatever, that you can save those animals because you can raise dollars uh, through the hunting fees and so forth and can uh, send that back to conservation efforts. But there is just a study out by a group of economists in Australia who showed the complete fallacy of that line of thinking and that Hunting brings in just a, a really surprising, I think they said 0.03% of GDP to any African country that engages in it. And where they actually make their money are from tourist dollars, from people who want to come and uh, shoot the animals with cameras and not with guns. Um, you know, in that uh, very uh, sphinx-like tweet, uh, he, he does say in no way helps conservation of elephants or any other animal. Now, that's kind of interesting, Virginia, because they did the same damn thing with lions a few months ago, right? They, yeah. they are allowing lion trophies, so to speak, to come in from Zambia and Zimbabwe. And, and they had done that apparently very quietly because uh, there certainly wasn't the outrage that the sudden announcement about the elephant solicited, but there would have been. And I think it's the case with the administration overall that they're tending to do make a number of changes to environmental protections that uh, aren't announced. You know, they don't they aren't announced at as the elephant uh, decision was announced at a wildlife trade show in Tanzania, you know, where it would get a lot of attention, a lot of press. Most of them are done rather behind the scenes. So. Yes, the elephants were also, or sorry, the lions were also uh, taken off the list of animals that were banned, whose body parts are banned from being imported into the U.S., but they too have been, um, that the ban has been reinstated. <laughs> kind of a weird time for these poor animals. Right. So, um, uh, and I apologize for trying to cram so much into, uh, this is a whole show we're cramming into sure. eight, eight minutes of conversation, yeah. but uh, here in Connecticut, uh, people are maybe just dimly aware or not aware uh, at all that, in fact, the Non-Human Rights Project uh, and an animal rights attorney uh, are is seeking uh, habeas corpus on behalf of three privately owned Asian elephants. Yeah. The notion being, this is sort of a part of a worldwide movement to see whether animals can have standing in courtrooms. Tell us yeah. about that. As, as persons, they want to attribute uh, legal personhood to certain animals which really should not be in captivity. And this includes uh, animals such as orcas, uh, killer whale shows that go on at some marine parks, and certainly the African elephant should not be, and the Asian elephant probably should not be in captivity. I think this is a privately owned zoo that has three female Asian elephants. And so Stephen Wise of the Non-Human Rights Project is arguing on their behalf that they actually, because of their um, empathetic and emotional natures, their cognitive abilities and so forth, they should be able to choose how they live. And they probably would not choose to live in a privately owned zoo and be forced uh, to give rides to people. And so he's arguing that they should be um, given a chance to live out a normal as much of a normal life as they can since they're not in their native habitat, but a, in a sanctuary where they could come and go as they wanted and make friends with other elephants and, 
have a more normal elephant life. A lot of this uh, arises actually from the world of philosophy. I mean, as early as the early 19th century, Jeremy Bentham was arguing this point. Peter Singer argued it very persuasively in Animal Liberation, that animals can have interests. Yes. And if you can have interests, that you should have some kind of standing to pursue those interests. And uh, Virginia, you know much more about elephants than I do, but elephants have rather complex lives that would suggest they have interests. They do. And, and it's what's interesting to me is the way that we know so much about how they respond to one another. And so people can say, well, these are just old bull elephants, the males that, are t- that trophy hunters would like to shoot because they have the largest tusks, and that they are solitary animals. They're just wandering around waiting for a moment uh, when their females are sexually aroused and they can go and mate. But in fact, they actually live in small groups of males together, and people have witnessed things. One researcher told me, after I'd written my piece for the Atlantic, but she told me about seeing a moment in uh, Atosha National Park in Namibia where there were three male elephants together, and they were walking along uh, in a little tight group, and the two on either side of the middle one were trying to support him. He was ill, ill, and they don't know what his ailment was, but he was having real difficulty, and so they were walking along and supporting them on either side with their trunks and tusks. And when he fell, they tried to lift him up, and they said they heard a very loud crack at that point, and one of the elephants who was trying to help the sick individual um, broke one of his tusks in in the effort to lift their friend. So when you see those sorts of um, emotional moments, you cannot say that these are not thinking, feeling animals who, you know, they're choosing to do that. They're choosing to do that because that is one of their friends. And uh, so I think when we when we see, when we observe these kind of behaviors in, in uh, various species, then it changes how, what is our relationship with them and how we should respond to um, having those animals either hunted or kept in captivity, made to do jobs for us as if they were slaves. All right, we're going to have to end there, but that's a good place to end. And maybe it's the uh, end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. And all. Maybe we can have another whole show about Great. elephants, the more I be, hear. It would be a wonderful show to have to talk about elephants and uh, the chimpanzees, orcas, many of these animals that we're really changing our attitude towards how we want to relate to them and, and what role they, what our relationship with them should be. Absolutely. Virginia Morell, we will speak again. Meanwhile, her most recent book is Animal Wise, The Thoughts and Feelings of Our Fellow Creatures. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about radiation. Please listen, said the elephant. If we want the world we know to stay alive, then man and beast, we must work together, and together we